Hi, this is Matt Joe Gow, and you're listening to Radio Karam, which is local community internet radio. And uh, we were having a chat about community radio earlier and how important it is to Melbourne, how important it is to the scene here, the music scene, but also the wider community. So check out Radio Karam, tune in. You're listening to Roland Brandt Method, where we talk all things fitness, mindset, well-being, performance, and lifestyle design so that you can live a high-performance life. On today's episode, we have Martin McPhillamy, who is a breath and well-being consultant. Welcome to the show, Martin. Thanks for having me on, Rowan. Yeah, take two, mate. So we did try and actually do this recording the other week via Zoom and the internet was not favourable to us. There was some great content, which is such a shame, but I'm sure this session will be even better. I'm sure it will. We're, this is a Perth, Perth Wi-Fi versus Malcolm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, lost over the desert. Uh, so you've had experience as a respiratory and sleep scientist. Can you explain that? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, um, respiratory and sleep scientists basically are trained in the NHS in the UK in 2009 to 2012 doing a bit of research on athletes looking at how to improve their respiratory muscle functions so the diaphragm to make that more efficient using particular devices that strengthen the diaphragm and then i worked uh, in the clinical field in the nhs for uh, for about three years basically doing all the diagnostic tests on people with breathing issues and sleep issues so that the doctors can then go okay what's going on and then the doctor would then send them back to me to either get a therapy to adjust what's what's going on or um um or, or put my medication so i did that in the uk for for three three and a half years and then moved to australia in 2016 and did that for the last six years and so yeah it was like i worked myself up to leading a team looking at sleep studies looking at uh, all different breath tests and, and how to, to to get people to breathe better but like i say i think last time I just kept seeing a common pattern of people going to a doctor, not getting any results, but still having issues. And the problem was mainly around stress and anxiety, really. So mm. then the issue was, like, where do they go next? They get sent to their GP, and the GP then says, well, you're stressed, just need to you know, stress less. Or if you got anxious, you need to go see a psychologist. And we already know that in Australia, it's hard to get to see a psychologist anyway. There's not a lot of them, and it's quite a hard program to get through. And some people don't want to see a psychologist. So I decided that I was going to start helping people understand their physiology and understand their bodies and understand how that relates to their psychology. So that took me to what I do now. Fantastic. So on that subject, you just covered a lot of things and my mind is going off crazy. So many questions I have. So obviously a lot of people do resort to medication as a band-aid fix instantly when they can't address or lower their stress levels and a lot of people just instantaneously go on that without getting therapy or anything i had a chat with uh, a pharma a pharmaceutical uh, doctor recently and he was saying that even ssris are meant to go hand in hand with therapy but many people are just taking them on their own and they take them long term and that's not what they were designed to do so can you elaborate on how physiology affects perception and psychology yeah, sure. I mean, if we go to the depth of it within you know, our nervous system itself, our peripheral nervous system is really trying to um, manage our level of arousal. And I mean arousal by excitement or stress versus kind of feeling relaxed. And what can happen if we are chronically in a situation where we're stressed or if we get you know, trauma as a child or something kind of uh, happens to us, let's say we lose a job or we lose a loved one, is that our nervous system can get stuck in that fight or flight mode and it can't get back into 
the relaxing mode again so it can kind of balance ourselves back out. So then what happens is our nervous system gets stuck in that you know, priming for action, but also seeking out threat more. But that nervous system is not only doing that, it's sending signals back up our vagus nerve to our brain, which is actually then trying to interpret based on the sensations that are going on our body, whether the heart rate is fast, whether the, the, the breathing is fast and shallow, or whether there's any kind of digestion problems or any kind of digestion going on at all, we'll say, well, our body is in a state of this sort of arousal, so should we be seeing the world in a certain way? So really our body is priming our, 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 our perception to, to, to know whether we're safe, whether we uh, should be in a, a state of fight or flight, or whether we should be like in a state of where we need to get out of there and kind of shut down. So. People who are anxious and you know, always stressed, their nervous system is really continually sending the signals to say, seek out threat. So what then happens is within perception, everything seems more challenging, seems more scary. Uh, people, you might have a perception that people don't, don't like you or you might be a bit paranoid about conversations or what might happen in the future. So if we can shift that nervous system or shift that breathing or shift that heart rate and learn to do that as a habit, we can pull ourselves out of that state and therefore change how our mind perceives the world. That's amazing. So I know that a lot of people, based on what you said, they look at the world through a particular lens. So things do look more, they see a lot of threats and you tend to get what you focus on. I've had a history working with domestic violence victims and traumatized youth and they have a heightened arousal baseline exactly like this, functioning very much in the sympathetic nervous system. And they constantly go into fight or flight mode. They are one step away from that threshold all the time and it goes through a long process of regulation. So could you give us some uh, physiological tools that someone can use to in the moment to manage the nervous system yeah i mean there's always obviously the, the the number one key that i talk about is just being able to slow that breath down so just being mindful of where is the breath coming from are you breathing through your mouth or breathing through, through your nose and if you are then just close your mouth and breathe through your nose and just try to slow it down and we know when we slow the breath rate down, that is obviously then sending the signals in our body that everything's a bit more calmer. So it will send signals back to the brain and that will then generally help us shift from a, you know, a, a, an anxious state to a more calm state. But then additionally, on top of that, we might want to look at promoting, uh, lengthening the exhale of a breath. And so we know that when we're in the breath cycle, obviously we have an inhale and an exhale. The inhale is actually activating more of the sympathetic nervous system and the exhale is activating more of the parasympathetic nervous system. So if we breathe with a slightly longer exhale and an inhale, that can mean we can spend five or 10 minutes putting ourselves into a, a parasympathetic state, our rest and digestive state, which then allows us to calm. So straight away, that's a tool that you can use in terms of, I feel a little bit of a alertness in my body or I'm a bit panicky. Okay, close the mouth, slow the breathing down, and just start to prolong those exhales a little bit, and that will calm you. It is definitely works. We have discussed this, obviously, a couple of weeks ago when we had a session, but I did an experiment with some of my competitive fighters. So on our breaks, we extend the exhales because I was also under the impression that it lowers the heart rate down significantly quicker. Uh, with the, we're actually using the physiological side, and I know we discussed this as well. Can you explain a bit, a little bit about Huberman's concept of the physiological side? Yeah, I mean, Andrew Huberman, obviously, a lot of people have um, heard of him. So he's a professor at Stanford University. 
has a massive podcast and a huge following now, but he has been doing a lot of research into stress and looking at breathing as a as a tool, comparing breathing in terms of a physiological side, cyclic hyperventilation, and just meditation to lower stress. And they found that the physiological side, which I'll explain in a moment, was the fastest way to bring down stress in the moment. And what that is, is just like anything, we sigh for... Uh, you know, we naturally sigh when we're relieved if at the end of this conversation, the conversation while I might come off it and go, ah, that was good. You know, we had a good conversation there. But to tap into that tool which instantly relaxes us, we can take a double inhale in through our nose, so a, and a long exhale out through the mouth. And that's prolonging the exhale, but also by doing that double inhale, is we're opening up the small alveoli within our lungs so we can get more of the CO2 out of that part of our lungs and blow that out. Because we know carbon dioxide, which is one of the gases that we breathe out and produce from energy, is actually a stress signal in our body. So when CO2 rises, it starts to cause um, the amygdala to be activated to then increase sympathetic nervous activity. So in the moment, we might sometimes kind of tense up, we might hold our breath, CO2 starts to rise and that then causes us to have this like a panic, a bit of a panic feeling. We can then use the physiological side just to try and get some of that CO2 bit down a little bit. Excellent. Now, another intervention now that we're talking about CO2, how effective is CO2 tolerance exercises in helping deal with things like panic and anxiety? Yeah, I mean, they're great as long as people can really understand how to regulate themselves first. So the thing is with carbon dioxide is it seems like carbon dioxide plays a role in anchoring fear into memory. So that if you are to put someone into a fearful state and that produces a lot of CO2, is that CO2 is almost like state anchoring through changes in pH to um, make the body realize that that situation they're in was a threat. But then what we can do is we can expose people to the either the situation or to carbon dioxide and the feeling and sensation and then get them to down-regulate and to, to stay relaxed and stay calm, to expose themselves, just like you would with any exposure therapy, to create adaptations so that you can expand your, let's say, your, your tolerance to it. And by doing that, you can then expand your tolerance to stress in general, so you get a bigger window to be able to get into before you start feeling stressed. But it's also a part of it is learning to, that when you do go to the point of let's say holding your breath and go for a short walk, If you, it's gonna be a point where it's gonna to start to feel distressful. That is the exposure, but then learning to actually slow down and calm down and stay relaxed with positive self-talk is also a, positive, a part of it to be able to learn how to regulate yourself back down again. So uh, CO2 tolerance training is great for experimenting with exposure to, to fears and anxiety, but also to widening your ability to tolerate stress in general. What a unique skill. Everyone talks about lowering overall stress, but only so much can be done. In the modern world, we're constantly bombarded with deadlines, family commitments, bills, the works. Mm. We, modern society is always stressful, even in high school. It's, it never ends. There's just new stresses coming all the time. So downregulation has been a hot topic. A lot of people are talking about it, and I've been implementing it myself with great results, plus with my clients. Can you elaborate on what downregulation means? It's any tool method or modality that is going to bring your nervous system back into the window of tolerance or back into a space of safety so we have 
um, the hyperarousal state where we're feeling anxious and our nervous systems and sympathetic, and then we've got hypoarousal where potentially we are too um, uh, like lacking energy. Yeah. But in the middle is where we're feeling connected, we're present, we're learning, we're curious. Downregulation is taking people from sympathetic into that present state where you feel safe. Fantastic. And, you know, that can be done through the breath like we've just talked about. But even just getting out in nature more often and going for a walk and unplugging from your phone and unplugging from work and just sitting down at the, um, you know, the ocean or in the forest and just the actual, the colors, the spectrums of light and the fractal shapes that appear in nature seem to have a effect on our brain that produces alpha brainwave states which then creates more relaxation and puts us into a state that state of safety and down regulates us there's been a lot of talk of things like earthing grounding negative ions as we know it's a hot topic at the moment a lot of people are reaping the benefits and there are many methods but the concepts are pretty much come back to that form of down regulation when would be a time and a place for up regulation because you mentioned when someone might not be stimulated at all lacking in motivation energy and things would that be something like a uh, cyclical hyperventilation yeah yeah so no we, i think about a the, my day as a, you know, look at your circadian rhythm so as you wake up you're going to get a burst of cortisol and that's going to increase your alertness and your your energy levels so if you want to do something that's kind of upregulating or you want to be able to bring up your energy level faster you want to kind of match it with that circadian rhythm where you're increasing you're wanting to have more energy so for my my personal experience and my personal practice is that in the morning i'll get out and i'll get into my garden where there's some fresh light and I'll be facing up towards the sun looking away and I'll be doing more of a forcefully inhale fast nasal breath work for about five minutes or so and then do some walking apneas on an exhale hold which is also charging the sympathetic nervous system to bring up my arousal state so therefore I can wake myself up faster and I can get into my you know, rather than feeling a little bit groggy and a little bit like uh, not ready to work I can get straight into doing stuff it's very interesting. So a lot of people don't realize there is a time and a place for cortisol. As you said, early in the morning, we want to be stimulated. We want to be active. When it becomes a problem is when people have increased cortisol at night yeah. uh, and obviously they can't calm down. So everyone demonizes it. Everyone's so focused on lowering cortisol levels, but you want that to perform and be alert. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, you just want it at the right times you yeah. when you're able to perform. So you know, if you're, if you're, if you are a professional fighter and you fight at nine o'clock at night all the time, like if you don't have cortisol, a professional fighter is always going to have cortisol because mm -hmm. of the nature of it. But if they have low cortisol at night time, it's not going to be ideal for them to go out and fight because they're not going to be prepared as well as they, they were. So if they know that actually they train in the evenings, they fight in the evenings and they get used to that, but then it's not going to be great for their sleep, but it might still prime them to be able to take a bit more action or be a bit better. They might look at you know, anchoring some form of ice bath or regulation in the evening to try and get themselves ready and prepared for the fight if they need that okay. most fighters are probably most fighters are probably going to want to calm down because the nature of a fight is going to be very uh, stimulating anyway but it's there's there's situations where you can put look at your life and go okay do i want to do this piece of work no, i'm not really motivated to do it okay well can i 
anchor that whatever it is, let's say it's just going for your emails, for example, you just don't like to do your emails, can you anchor some book regulation work and then follow your emails after and use that as a behavior to try and create some energy to go and do that? Fantastic tool that is very useful. Now, my next question is, hypothetically, we use an upregulation strategy for something, as you, an example, you mentioned emails or any sort of tasks that we need to be focused and attentive for. How long will cortisol levels remain elevated for? When will they come back down? Do we have to downregulate after when we want to shift gear or will they come down naturally over a period of time? So we, we have obviously got a circadian rhythm, which is over a 24-hour period, and we get that natural rise of cortisol coming up and then it comes down in the evenings. But there's certain pulsatile spikes of when cortisol is released, and these are on actually what's called a eutradian cycle. So when you wake up, or just maybe 90 minutes before you wake up, you'll get a big bolus of, of cortisol that is released for about 30 to 40 minutes, and then it will back off again. And then about 90 minutes later, you'll get another bolus of uh, uh, cortisol released in a pulse, and that's what creates the gradual cu accumulation and wakes us up. So we have these periods where uh, uh, cortisol is actually being released on a larger amplitude, a larger scale, and we can tap into this and go, okay, right, at what point in the morning do I feel my most alert? Where you feel your most alert is probably where you're getting into that higher, the highest level of cortisol release. And you're in that middle of that eutradian um, cycle. So then you might scale that back about 40 minutes and say, okay, right, this is the ideal place now to be doing my, um, you know, your most significant bout of work, whether that be an exercise if you're an athlete, whether that be your business work if you're a business person, or someone like yourself, maybe if they were recording or something, um, that would be the period to do it then. You're then going to get a block of around about 90 minutes where you're going to be able to get an increase in arousal, and then after about 45 minutes, it's gradually going to start to come back down again. Okay. Then you'll have a period of about 20 minutes where you are going to feel a little bit kind of tired, lethargic. You're going to want to go take a rest. This is where people will then go and grab a coffee or grab their phone or try, like they just don't, they're procrastinating. So they try and force themselves to actually do like more action. But this is a time for introspection and rest. So you might then go for your walk in nature. You might do your 20 minutes of uh, internal breathing. You might do a yoga nidra. You might do some introspection and allow your brain just to um, drift off creatively. So then it gets to rest and the next, then you've got that next period where you're going to get a bolus again. And we get about two big, two to three big boluses in the morning and then they dimmer down in the evenings. So that would be the positioning where I'll be looking at trying to use um, uh, the cause of cortisol to, I guess, allow you to tap into the higher energy and higher levels of focus. That is such a handy hint for many entrepreneurs and people that work for themselves because they can actually prioritize when they need to do deep work based on that mm. cortisol spike. So do some people have it reversed? A lot of people say that it's not a morning person. Is it because yeah. they're just dysfunctional because of their habits and behaviors or are they actually wired to be a night owl? Yeah, I mean, there's the, it's, it's interesting that uh, there's night owls and there's, there's morning lights, but it's also down to habits as well because we've got the, the central clock, which is controlling your circadian rhythm, but what's controlling a lot of these eutradian rhythms is local clocks. So that's gonna be when do you eat? When do you exercise? Um, when are you still or when are you active and you know when you do get that kind of light exposure and so really the high performance individual needs to learn where do they feel most focused and most uh, energized and then 
keep consistent their exercise routine and when they're eating and their bedtime and their morning time around the same period because then they have it mapped out because as soon as you start if you exercise at different time in the day your local clock in in your in your which is basically controlled by your your hormones is um is not going to be able to be in sync and the body needs to really ideally wants to be within these rhythms interesting so a lot of people always advocate for having a routine waking up at the same time each day going to bed at the same time each day yeah is that essential yeah. for pretty much plotting a regular circadian rhythm and those peaks of cortisol levels to be regulated yeah i mean that's gonna it's definitely gonna optimize it for sure it's going to be creatures of we're creatures of habit all animals really are and um you know we're, we're our body is ran hormonally through increases and decreases that are on a cyclical pattern but also our autonomic nervous systems are is a predicting machine and our brains are predicting machines so when we have this routine if we stick to a routine for a certain period it's almost like the autonomic nervous system the brain just knows what's coming next so for, let's say for example if someone is struggling to sleep at night time and they start to build a routine and they choose free habits let's say that habit is to have a have a chamomile tea to brush their teeth, to do some uh, slow breathing or a meditation and go to bed. If they keep doing that, the nervous system and the brain is going to predict, okay, cool, right, I've had my tea, I've had my, I've brushed my teeth, I'm now doing my breathing, I know sleep's next. Mm. That's where rituals come into play. I've had a lot of people discussing with sleep hygiene, having an evening ritual, letting the body know that it's time to unwind. So how do we navigate our way around changes for example someone has an event or a wedding or something how can they get mm -hmm. back into that routine if they have they go away for the weekend or something like that yeah i mean i think it's having that habit in place to begin with but uh, one of the, the question you're alluding to is like more so how do we reshift our habits back or change the habits back mm. let's look there's a couple of things that i will tend to do with people number one is trying to make it as small and as achievable and as attainable as possible to keep it consistent most people when they make habit change is they try to go right i need to change everything and then they fail and then they stop doing it yes so it's like just looking at can you make one or two changes to begin with and maybe stack those changes with a habit that you already do that's within you know okay for example let's go i eat breakfast every single morning i don't even have to think about that Oh, is there a positive habit you want to do after breakfast that you then can anchor into that, that you're already doing in the morning to create like a series? This is coming to, uh, I think it's James Clear's book, Atomic, uh, Atomic Habit. He talks about habit stacking as a, mm. a good way to be able to stack things together. But what I also like to do is get people to prioritize habits. Okay, well, we can prioritize them in importance, but also we can prioritize them on what's going to give you the biggest bang for book, for the smallest amount, and also what is going to be the most attainable and then focus on getting those two in first. Great concept because you could literally make a full-time job out of prioritizing your health and well-being. There's millions of methods that you could follow. Mm. Uh, yeah. And again, it's picking what's most effective for you, what's relevant to your unique situation, your problems, your goals. I'm sure there'd be a few things that would be common for all people. So if you could pick five things to optimize managing their physical and emotional state what would you include that would be certainly um, and i have to agree with what andrew huberman says it's just getting outdoor 
when you wake up and just getting some light in your eyes when you wake up. If you have the opportunity to, to get outdoors in natural nature because the sunrise is coming up when you're, um, when you're waking up, great. If not, then try and get some form of, um, of artificial light. Like, we don't really think about this because Andrew Huberman has made this whole big thing of just getting sunlight in your eyes, but really it's just get outdoors. And how many people wake up, they have their breakfast, um, they have a chat and conversation, they jump in their car in the garage, they drive with the windows down, they go straight into walk into their office and then just sit there and just got no outdoor exposure in that whole first um, period of waking up. It's just, uh, you know, it's more common than often. So I would say that is going to be one. Yeah. Uh, before you move on to the second one, how much of it is being physically outdoors in comparison to the actual stimulation from sunlight? I think the stimulation from the sunlight does have an impact. I think the outdoors bit is just more so um, calming and maybe just uh, setting yourself a bit of a more of a, a relaxing, peaceful time. The light itself is obviously that's helping to um, uh, bring in the, the increases in, in the, the cortisol through the challenging the, 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 you know, the, the, the eyes and the, the light in the eyes and how that all works in terms of creating changes in the uh, HP axis of the, the nervous system to actually stimulate cortisol release. Fantastic. So the light in the eyes doesn't have to be like, you know, you're not staring at the sun, but it's just <laughs> getting outdoors and just, and just when the sun is coming up, the actual spectrum of light and the positioning of where the sun is it's just ideal for getting the light into the top part of our retina, which then just increases, uh, just, is where our, the, the light spectrum is absorbed to, to create this change that we want. Excellent. Thank you for going over that and just clarifying. So what would be the second? The second one would then be, um, for me, getting some movement if you can. Like, whether that just be five or ten minutes of just high intensity exercise so you might even do that outdoors you might even do it in your garden or you might just go for a walk to combine the two but just having that uh routine of just getting your heart rate elevated putting yourself into a stressor and just getting again cortisol increasing neuroadrenaline really increasing and some following that some endorphins release so that you're setting and priming yourself to feel good for the rest of the day hmm. excellent and the my third next one <laughs> my next one would that yeah so my next one would then be looking at uh really having some form of relaxation or like a non-sleep deep rest around just after the lunch period so when that period where people get um what would you say the mid-afternoon kind of uh slump in there tiredness after, after the dinner just having a 20 minute block there where you might do some period of yoga nidra after dinner yeah after lunch with the, oh, after, so after lunch yeah just to clarify so is there a cutoff point because i have been recommending yoga nidra or nsdr to a lot of people and i've been using it myself particularly if i've had a poor night's sleep and yep. just whether i've done a guided uh yoga nidra uh generally between 15 minutes to a half an hour. But I actually found, funnily enough, the other week I did 20 minutes of transcendental meditation and then went, looked at my phone for a brief period of time and then did some yoga nidra for just under an hour. And it did register as some REM sleep and 
light sleep, both for their meditation as well as the yoga nidra. And I know that these sleep trackers, it's debatable how effective they are, but it still must have insinuated that I was in a relatively deep state of awareness and rest. Yeah, I mean, I think you, yeah, you do have to. That's where with these sort of things, you've got to be mindful. Like even with just napping, you, you don't want to leave it. If you're someone that goes to bed at 9 or 10 o'clock at night, you don't. You want to ideally be doing them before 2 p.m., 3 p.m., around that period. Yeah. But, but for some people, specifically the yoga nidra can kind of help train the brain get into those deeper states of relaxation and therefore when it comes to going to sleep at night time it's like almost uh, um, it's trained to be able to do that so you can you can switch off but then for other people it might be if you're a person who doesn't struggle to sleep at night time but you use a yoga nidra during the day it could then impact just ability to sleep at night so it, it is being mindful of those and that's where working with a coach obviously being able to get that feedback and discussing that sort of thing is going to be an additional beneficial a benefit of knowing when to pull it back out and not do it or when to leave it in. Yeah, well, I guess everything's individualized depending and has to be relevant to the individual. But yeah, so yeah, I loved hearing about, you mentioned it last time we spoke, it is very effective. I found that if I just didn't feel right after a night's sleep and I had a bit of time in between clients to get a, an SDR session in, I did feel noticeably better. Yeah. So what would be the fourth the fourth, so now we're moving, I'm thinking of it like daytime. We're Sorry for putting you on the spot, by the way, everyone, we did not plan this. <laughs> I've just thrown him under the bus. Yeah, that's all good. The fourth would be then, again, looking at lights in the evening, and as soon as the sun starts to set, or if you can, go and watch the sunset. Now, if you're near the ocean, I'm in Perth, we get sunsets here, over here on the west, so we, we're quite fortunate actually go and watch the sunset it would be a great way just again to allow your body just to relax to teach it that it's uh time to go to sleep but if not if you're in the house it's then starting to dim the lights down and to really make an ambient change in the the, the energy of the house when the, the, the sun is set so it's just like okay well now it's about calmness and stillness rather than being energizing Excellent. I've heard good things about watching the sunset and upon reflection, any times that I have, I've always generally felt very good in that experience. I'm fortunate enough to live close to the beach myself, so I think I'll make that a priority to do more with my family. So what would be the fifth? The fifth one would just be some uh, exhalation, focus, breathing, just for 10 minutes before you get into bed and being consistent with the time that you do that. Yes, that... um. That leads me to another question. I know a lot of people that are always advocating for Wim Hof type style breathing. For people that aren't familiar with Wim Hof, pretty much cyclical hyperventilation. But they do it at night and in the morning. Logically, you'd think doing something that stimulates the sympathetic nervous system or upregulating wouldn't be a good thing to do in the evening. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, based on the, uh, the, the nature of how it works, you would think, right, we're, we're, we're taking big, deep, fast breaths in, we're stimulating here, we're activating that sympathetic nervous system. So therefore you'd think when you go to go to sleep, you might feel a bit more agitated. But on a unique, on a unique individual level is you've got to really think of the individual. Now, this is where state change can make people feel uh, very different depending on the person's perspective. Now, if you've got a type A type person who's 
thrives off being on the go. And in fact, when they achieve and when they do stuff, they actually feel more relaxed than when they feel still. When they go to do stuff like Wim Hof, it makes them feel relaxed because it's given them that dopamine and that hit of rush that they actually um, are used to having. Whereas if you get them to sit still and calm down, they notice the anxiety and they don't like that. So that, for some people, they can get kind of addicted to that state, really. And that's where you have to kind of be mindful of what are we trying to achieve here? Is how we trying to achieve um, down, true down regulation and to teach people that they're in a sympathetic state or we're just trying to make someone feel good and relaxed mm. because there's a difference there's a difference there because you can still do Wim Hof breathing at the end of the Wim Hof breathing feel like oh I've got a lot of endorphins that makes me feel good about myself but that not being ideal for your nervous system and your your blood pressure and you know your, your anxiety long term yeah so it depends on the actual goal and the individual very good response that makes a lot of sense because i've known a lot of people that swear by it and just the more we talk about it just doesn't seem like i know it's a wonderful tool i met wim hof probably eight years ago and did the ice bars with him up in the city in the cold water there i sorry the uh, cyclical hyperventilation was great really interesting guy but it just seems like the night time wouldn't be the right time to use it but it makes sense that some people would benefit from it with the endorphins and things with ticking that off the list that they've achieved something yeah, and I mean it, the word benefit is really dependent because, like I said, like I say, it's a it, you you can like anything. It's really you can take a, you know a, a, a junkie who does drugs or someone with a, a, a food dependency. You feed them food or you give them the drugs and they feel relaxed. But you no, know, it's the same thing with stressors. If you give someone who's always stressed and is addicted to that stress to give them a stressor, are you just feeding the uh, the addiction? Very interesting. So I actually read something recently, and I'd love to hear your thoughts. Some, I think, I forgot the name of the woman, but it was a, a psychology channel, and they were discussing the concept of being addicted to cortisol and constantly living in that state of hyperarousal and feeling uncomfortable when you aren't in that particular state. How, how many people do you think actually living in that state? Because I feel like I could definitely pick points in my life in the past where I was functioning at that level. Ah, uh, look, it's uh, there's a there's a whole concept out there under a guy called Ernest Rossi, who was a psychotherapist trained by Carl Jung and Milton Erickson. He died in the uh, in the nineteen late nineteen ninety or even two thousand actually. But he had a concept of state dependent memory learning, in that we get attached to certain states because they will then create certain outcomes. So going back to like the ice bath or going back to the Wim Hof breathing or any kind of novel stressor, if we are to be doing a skill or a task during that period when we're in that certain state, we get attached and dependent to that actual state to be able to then perform. That particular task? That particular task or that, yeah, that particular performance. Wow. And in martial, in martial arts, obviously, when you're training in martial arts, they'll some people, some martial arts clubs will do a lot of like, you know, big breath work, hyperventilation stuff, and then they'll do their moves. And, you know, sometimes you see these silly videos where it's like someone touches someone and they go flying. And things <laughs> like this. Well, during, when you're doing all that and you're doing it in the martial arts, then what happens in the street fight, if you can't then do that big breath work before the street fight, you can't get yourself on top, you lose the skill. Yes. It gets anchored into the, the state, not into the actual... The, the learning, the memory, the learning gets anchored into the physiology state. 
interesting because so I know it's situational. Yeah, going back to your question is that some people just feel like they can't perform or they just feel off if they're not in a particular physiological state. And therefore, it's not dependency on cortisol, it's dependency on the physiological state that they're in. Which would impact cortisol? It's not, yeah, well, because the cortisol is the hormone that's in there, but the actual physiological state is down to things like the breath rate, the, the nervous system, the, you know, the actual heart rate itself, like those interoceptive sensations, the way they feel. Yes. That is very interesting because I can picture that many fighters that perform one way in the gym but perform completely different when it comes to competition. Generally, they're very relaxed in their home environment, training with people that they know, training for an extended period of time. They're calm. They're regulated at that moment. It's just another day in the office. But when it comes to competition, they're in that hyper-arousal state. They've got anxiety. They're very stressed. They don't warm up properly. They're stiff and robotic, and they just don't perform. They can't, they're like a deer in the headlights. Yeah. Yeah, and this is where you need to have, within the training, you need to have sort of training that is... Um going to throw in stresses every now and then that are novel or random or um, you know unique so that people are always pre- trying to prepare themselves for what could potentially come and not just be stuck in the one position doing the same thing with the same people. It's putting yourself out there and going into different places and being willing to uh, confront those as well as you know just in the area that you're used to. Getting comfortable being uncomfortable. Now, that leads me to something else I wanted to talk about. It seems like the best way to manage stress is incorporating some form of down regulation and learning to do that in the moment in real time, on the go. But also maybe exposure to acute stress in the form of hormesis. Can you explain the concept of hormesis? Yeah, I mean, we, we've either got um, situations where they are going to put this into a, you know, a stressful situation that's just beyond our f- physiological reach or moves our physiology out of the kind of current balance it is in but it's able to come back so going back to like that nervous system the nervous system can activate the stress response but then the parasympathetic nervous activity can bring it back to the position of balance again that would be a hermetic stressor over a period of time, would we continue to expose ourselves to the same stresses, or if the stress is too significant, then it can't get back to the state of balance, and eventually that's going to lead to a catabolic state. So rather than there be a recovery and performance being better, it gets to a point where performance will start to decline. And that then, if we could continue down that path, we're going to lead to anxiety, burnout, and eventually things like mental health, mental health problems and suicide interesting as i know a lot of people out there uh, just to expand on that a lot of people out there are living stressful lives as we we already said they're probably struggling with sleep they've got long hours at work problems with relationships the works then they throw in high intensity interval training on top of that when they're already in a sympathetic state they're not recovering from training properly anyway adding things like hormetic activities on top of that i imagine would be detrimental if the person's chronically stressed yeah, um, so many people out there are looking for that next dopamine hit and the next, um, it's just it's coming back to that the feeling and need to achieve or accomplish or do something hard that not realizing 
eventually this is going to go to a point where the body can't take it anymore. And professional athletes are well known for being individuals that do this. Like what happens after they finish their careers is that often they're so used to putting themselves into these positions of training hard all the time and they don't have that is they need to find another way to seek their dopamine or their, 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 their the, um, the same rush and it can lead to alcohol and drugs. That's, it's not uncommon for, for, for professional athletes to go down that route. It's just because they're seeking out what's that next, the next step. But really, if we're to say getting comfortable with being uncomfortable, for someone who is sympathetically charged, what's the uncomfortable? It's the stillness. Yeah. Yeah, that's... I can... Just a bit of reflection, I was very much sympathetically charged in my younger years and I had to add a bit of introspection. I thought, what is a polar opposite to me? And I thought it was a monk. So I went and did yeah. 10 days silence in a Buddhist temple and it was so uncomfortable at the time. Mm. It was really out of my comfort zone, but I recognized that that's something that I needed to make me more of a balanced individual. Uh, one of the best things I ever did. So I've been a big proponent for encouraging people to use things like meditation. It sort of led me down the path of exploring things like down regulation and various forms of breath work and things. But it's very true. And so many people are operating on that level and they don't even know. And they just say, I can't sit still. It's more the more reason to learn to be able to sit still, to be still with your thoughts and navigate your way through them instead of numbing them or avoiding them. Yeah, I mean, it's just looking in that mirror and being honest with yourself and going, oh, well, why can't I sit still? And then, and the issue is here as well is the ego will also block it because the ego doesn't want to look at, um, you know, the, what's really going on there. Because if people actually start to, these individuals start to, and I, I've been in the same situation, start to sit down and be still and then observe what's happening with the mind and observe the thoughts, it's often because they're just completely ignoring something else in their life. And they're becoming so obsessed with um, you know, a, a pattern of behavior that is just ignoring that. Like, you know, I've got, um, got friends who might be going through breakups, for example, or, or poor marriages, but they're just business, so business orientated that they're just forgetting about their marriage. Yeah. But if they were to sit still all of a sudden, what's going to come up? Actually, me and the wife aren't getting on too well. All that, you know, that fear and that is sitting and recognizing I've got all these emotions in. It's just easier just to bury yourself in the in the sand, right? Well, that's so many workaholics out there that are extremists in any fear, whatever their vice is, they never sit still and go through that period where they reflect on where they are, their problems, what they're facing, how they currently feel. And it's, they avoid it. It's It can so easily be replaced with something as simple as scrolling through your phone. Mm, yeah. I mean, I think anyone who's in anything extreme, Great, fantastic, you've achieved. You're in that extreme situation because there's something you're either trying to avoid or has pushed you there. Yes. Well, that's it. It is. Um, it definitely is a coping strategy for a lot of people, some positive, some viewed as successful, uh, yep. not necessarily positive, but viewed commonly by society as being successful in that extremeness. But, yes, it is a coping strategy. My other question is how long can people sprint for? Because I know a lot of people out there that – they say they're workaholics, they're go, go, go all the time. How long can they actually sustain it for without something starting to fall apart? I imagine it would impact them either mentally, physically, or the things around them would just start to collapse. Yeah, well, that's, that's uh, you know, it's a, it's a challenging question because it's really going to be really unique to the individual. And it, you know, my business performance through health is based off like the, at the foundation is your, you know, your sleep, your breathing habits, your and your general health, the more someone has 
the resilience and the capacity in terms of their ability to do that by having a solid health base, the longer they're going to be able to sustain their performance for. And wait, no, I would say really sprinting is going 100%, you're not going to last long. Yeah. I, I give most people to say, hey, look, you want to have about, you want to be working around most of the time about 65 to 70%, 65% to 75%, to give yourself 30 to 25% reserve to be able to sprint when you need to. Hmm. But, but then get back to, you know, that 70, 70% again. And to have things in place when you, when you know you need to sprint, do you need to take time off before or do you need to block time off after to make sure that your body is recovered or prepared? prepared to recover sorry yeah that's very relevant i know something that took me a long time to learn was not to wait until i was completely exhausted before it was time to rest mm. factoring yes. that rest time in between and so many people don't do it there's a um, there's a curve that people can use it's called the human function curve by dr peter nixon so people can just google that curve and i've i've put it on my um on my social media and it basically will just give a, a subjective point of where they are on that level of either the stress is too, where they are the stress is too much and they're in that catabolic state and they need to look at recovering or they, they've got a bit more to give and you can look at it and just go oh, okay i'm at the peak here i feel like i've given my all i'm actually steaming ahead if i go any further i'm going to go into a negative performance so therefore, I need to think about implementing more recovery so I can then increase my performance. Yes. Well, uh, it's funny. Something else came up recently about the difference between functional overreaching and non-functional overreaching in terms of this was related to exercise, but I guess it applies to anything in life as well. Mm. Obviously, any stress that you're willingly put yourself through you wanted to have a positive outcome where there's an adaptation at the end where you have more resilience and you're better and you've been successful in some way, way, shape or form. But a lot of people just barreling on the stress all the time and it is having that negative impact where they just collapse and they can't maintain performance. Yeah, and I think uh, it's because people are so not in tune with their body. There's that mind-body disconnect. So it's almost like the logical thought of exercise over overrides the listening to the body and going actually I need a rest like how many people will be fatigued but because they've told them they've told themselves I need to work out five six times a week will fit that six exercise program in there that six exercise session in there despite the body going look maybe you can take a few days off just because it it's in there as like in their diary it's like a, it's, again the fact so I need to achieve that it's you know there's a lot of people out there that will do that when it's really, if you tap into what your physiology is telling you, is what I try to teach people, is we can look at how are we breathing, how are we sleeping, other some simple breathing tests, checking with our heart rate in the morning. We know then, okay, cool, right, it's time to uh, ramp it up or it's time to back off. And therefore, we can be more intuitive with our approach. Great point. And it is very common that people say, if you're not assessing, you're just guessing. So what are some ways that people can measure how stressed they are or how it's impacting them? Yeah, I mean, in terms of obviously, if you've got uh, watches and stuff like that, that measure these all different things, HRV, heart rate variability is going to be one of the main indicators that people are using nowadays. And, you know, heart rate variability is an indicator of 
how much parasympathetic tone that we have within our nervous system. So when heart rate variability is low, it means that we're more stressed. And when heart rate variability is more stressed, it means that we're, uh, sorry, more uh, higher, it means we're more prepared and resilient and adaptive. So if we get significant changes or significant drops in heart rate variability from these measures, then we can say, hey, look, actually we need to recover and spend some more time focusing on sleep and arousal management and some slight breathing, for example. But we've also got, um, you know, within breathing, we've got what's called an exhale max test, which is basically from taking a big breath into full and really slowly controlling the exhale out your nose as slowly as possible all the way until you're completely empty. We can time that period and we can track that as well. And that's gonna, that will also drop when you're too stressed because there'll be too, too much CO2 produced in the body and your breathing mechanics won't be quite good. So we can use that as a, uh, a, a an intuitive bodily measure that's gonna give us some indices that we don't have these fancy watches and technology. Interesting. So what's that particular breathing exercise called? The exhale max test. I've heard of the bolt score before, but never the exhale max test. What number yeah. should people be aiming for? So it's going to vary from person to person because it's a measure of lung volume as well as flow. But generally, if you're getting less than 20 on an exhale max test, that means that you're highly sympathetically charged. Okay. If you're getting from 20 to 40, that means that you're, you, you can probably improve your breath mechanics. If you're getting 40 to 60, you're reasonably good. When you start getting 60 and above, that means that you've got you know, good CO2 tolerance. On an exhale, a 60 second yeah. exhale. Yeah. That seems like a long time. <laughs> I'm gonna give this a go. I'm very interested in this. It does, but you know, I've taken people from 26 seconds up to over a minute. I've had another guy get from like 46 seconds to over two minutes. It's just really is learning to be able to tolerate that CO2 and be able to relax and control and exhale. Yeah, well, I guess that strategy, again, some stresses are controllable, but many things in our life, we just have to deal with them. So increasing our ability to cope with them and manage them and remain in a parasympathetic state despite of them is a unique skill. Yeah. Well, it's the internal world is a, you know, the external world is a mirror of our internal world. And that's, that's uh, the gist of what I try and tell people is like, I'm coaching you, but I'm not taking any of your stress away. I'm not, you know, I'm not, getting rid of your toxic boss. I'm not getting rid of your, your your nagging wife. I'm literally giving you the tools that are going to change your internal state so you can see it differently and you can respond to it better. So what we mentioned some of the physiological tools like breathing exercises. Are there psychological tools? Are there? Yes. Yeah, I mean, you've got, uh, uh, you know, the cognitive behavioral therapy psychologists are all going to work with the cognitive tools so you've got re reframing of situations yep so you can obviously just change to look at um rather than going what is happening to me here what can i learn from this and simply look, see whether there's any takeaways there's uh, reflections in terms of actually just journaling away when you feel emotional changes you can actually write and allow what comes up to your unconscious mind and to see whether there's anything that is deeper rooted um there is where are you placing your focus 
that's another one like you said earlier where you place your focus is where you really kind of see things like can you actually write down and change where you're placing your focus and then decide that that's a choice to focus on the positive rather than the negative well, i found it fascinating when i first heard about the ras a reticular activating system filtering mm. all the information coming at us at any one time and it just makes sense if you're going to buy a yellow car you see yellow cars everywhere the other person won't because yeah. they've got no interest in a yellow car but that lens is dictated by what they're focusing on yeah and it comes down to values comes down to how much do you value something it's also you know why if someone if a really pretty woman walks into a room why does everyone look at her yeah it's because their uh, beauty is valued in society so like, that's basically our focus is being shifted over there so we can intrinsically look at what is it that we truly value and for most people if they're putting their values onto external things extrinsic things it can only get them so much so far they might get reward from feeling achievement but they're not going to get fulfillment because it's external value whereas if you place something on the inside of just you know feeling uh, worthy or feeling loved or feeling in connection you can then you can change and take back the power of something that externally was making you feel better to then actually internally being satisfied because you just know inside that you have have it already I'm so glad you brought this up because it is a bit of a common theme. People, everyone has their own individual values. There is some that are very common between most people, but you generally find a way, whether positively or negatively, to fill that value. And even negative behavior in some ways is meeting a need in some respect. So you have to replace, that need still needs to be met. How many people do you think are not living in a line with their values? Oh, so many. Because how many people actually consciously decide to look at their values and choose them? Yeah, they're, they're, they're not they're They're often taught or they're often, um, you know, through childhood. Let's say, for example, my own example, my my father wasn't in the household that much. But whenever I saw him, he gave me money and he gave me pocket money. So I believe that love meant exchange of money. Wow. So my value of love would you know that. And how many people are out there being programmed and those sort of things? But they realize that don't ever realize because they're just not conscious to 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 make that decision or just haven't made that decision to or they've not had someone to support them to make that so i i just finished working with a lady and when i started towards the end when i was working with her she was like i still don't feel like i fully have permission to relax and i was like okay well let's explore that more so what is it that you're trying to achieve and she's like well i just want to kind of have the freedom to um to make choices on my health and my well-being and put that first but i'm so busy at work that i can i can never really prioritize to put that first and i was like okay well why not he said well i make a list for work and um uh, a list of things i've got to get done and i never get through that list and i was like well there's your issue it's like you're making you're setting yourself up for failure hmm. so you've made a list and that list is dictating whether you can then go and relax but you value freedom and relaxation to be able to make a choice, but then you make, you've got a behavior that doesn't allow you to do that. You've got a conflict between your behavior and your value here. So I'm going to challenge you to stop making a list of things to do. <laughs> How did she respond? We're going to find out next week. <laughs> Stay tuned. I'm very curious when we have you back again to go down the rabbit hole to hear the update with this. I'll definitely remind you of that. So... I find it funny that so many people aren't even aware what their values are. If you ask them, they can't tell you. They might have a few buzzwords like family but, or health, but their behaviors don't reflect that most of the time. 
It's usually driven by many things. So I find it fascinating and I encourage everyone to get clear on what their values are. Before we move on, because we are running out of time, something I did want to bring up is how chronic stress leads to modern day health concerns, things that we're facing in this day and age. Yeah, I've just recently been reading some papers on this uh, recently and it's, uh, it's a fascinating area that when we look into really what's going on with stress, we, especially if we look it down to what happens with the breath, is when we initially have a stressor, there's almost like a, a freeze response before we have a sympathetic nervous response. So out in the wild, if there's a, you know, a predator is, a prey runs along a predator, the prey has to stop. So it goes silent, has to stop and pause the breathing so the predator doesn't notice it. There's a short period there where it's going to make a very slight decision and then the sympathetic nervous activity is going to kick in to get it to run away, fight or flight. Mm. Human beings, they might have a stressor, there might be a little, little bit of a pause, then there'll be you know, the actual sympathetic charge. But nowadays, human beings have a society where you can't just go on and go for a run. Now, if there's a fight or flight, unless it's an actual flight, but if you, know, you get a message from your partner and they or you get a, a message from your boss and that gives you that, that feeling of anxiety. Naturally, we should be shaking it off or using our muscles because that primer is to use energy. But we don't do that now. So then we get all this stored energy that's in the body. But over, over a long period of time, this is going to cause a physiological response. And through the change in, uh, rather than out in the wild, it's homeostasis coming back to balance. Human beings don't have that because they don't use the sympathetic charge. They get allostatic changes. So what happens is, is there's more of like it's a stabilizing in the moment issue. So the body will stabilize and bring physiology into the same place. But down the line, there'll be some remodeling that will happen. So that remodeling might be in the heart. And therefore, you might get some in the long term, get cardiac arrhythmias or a heart attack. That remodeling might be in the vascular system and you get stiff arteries um, and you end up with high blood pressure or it might be in the, the liver or the kidneys and you end up with diabetes. Wow. So we don't go through that process of discharging stress regularly throughout mm. the day, it just compacts over time and has yes. those physical manifestations in the body as a result? Yes, just simply down the line, down systemic um, remodeling because of physiological changes that were not used. Wow. Martin, I absolutely love the chat. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Lots of wisdom. Where can people find you if they want to know more? They can find, if you Google performance through health, um, you will find that, or my name, you'll find that across Google. But social media, I'm mostly active on Instagram, or you can add me on LinkedIn if you, you know, you're looking for some um, connection just to reach out about my services. Fantastic. Martin, again, thank you very much for coming on. Definitely going to have you back again in the future. There's a lot more that I want to talk to you about and I want to hear that update with that client. Yeah, of course. No, thanks for having me on, Rowan. Thanks, yeah. Martin. Have a great day, mate. Hi, my name's Paul Kennedy and I'm a sport reporter for the ABC and when I'm not listening to the ABC, I listen to Radio Karam. Tune in and enjoy.
called TAD to remodel my place. Said I wanted it to be that kind of place. Knee deep in the reno, sinking in our fights. Other shonky builders waking me up at night. And Adam plays the boss man. He listens to the customer. Don't you remember? He built this kitchen. He built this kitchen with TAD. We built this kitchen. We built this kitchen with TAD. We built this kitchen. We built this kitchen with TAD.